Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the Prospect Podcast. I'm Tom Clark and this week we're going to be talking to David Wallace-Wells about the climate crisis. How do we confront it and what dangers await us if we don't? He's been looking deep into the future and I have to tell you it's not looking good. First though, um, I'm joined by our Deputy Editor Steve Bloomfield. Steve, um, we'll talk or you'll talk soon to um, David about the global picture, the global politics now of this um, climate um, crisis, but both of us are uh, less than fresh and back from party conferences. Um, What did you pick up about how it's going down in British politics, this subject of climate at the moment? The most striking thing, Tom, about Labour Party conference was that away from the main headlines about whether you were for or against Tom Watson or what the Brexit uh, policy was going to be, um, actually much of the conference was dominated about Labour's climate change policy and whether it was going to, uh, how it was going to push for what it calls a Green New Deal. Um, And there was something of a, not a row, but like a political disagreement, which, um, which got worked out in the end with on one side some of the more traditional trade unions um, who wanted uh, a slower approach and on the other side uh, groups like Labour for a Green New Deal, like Momentum and indeed some other uh, trade unions that wanted the Labour Party to be much bolder and in the end they were the ones who who won out. Labour committed itself to um, meet net zero emissions by 2030 which is uh, one of the most radical uh, proposals, most radical targets of any political party in Europe. Um, The Greens uh, here in the UK have also got 2030. The Tories have got 2050. The Lib Dems 2045. Um, Yeah, there are some who will say that 2030 is unrealistic, uh, but it was certainly a very bold policy pledge. Interesting there on the Liberal Democrats at 2045. So they've got, um, you know, the, the Conservatives, the government have gone for... 2050 and it is only this year that we've aimed for net zero in 2050 as opposed to uh, a very sharp reduction which was the previous plan and it has to be said the government haven't worked out how they're going to do it and yet it's one of those areas now where there is just massive competition so even the Liberal Democrats have to say when I was at the conference I didn't see much climate I just saw a lot of talking about Europe they've got to go for 2045 and then maybe Jeremy Corbyn aware that he's um 
cheesing off some of his young supporters on the question of Brexit is looking at this as a way of um, giving them a bit of something. Yes, I think so. I mean, I think it is partly for Labour. They are now a party where um, the the grassroots can make policy. And you, what you saw was this this relatively new group, Labour for a Green New Deal, had worked very, very closely with constituency Labour parties around the country and with trade unions to try and get uh, a lot of support for this before uh, before party conference. Um, and I think one of the things I found interesting about this policy was that there were actually policies. You know, if you speak to the Conservatives, they have this target mm. of net zero emissions by 2050, but they can't tell you how they're going to get there. Mm. Now, if you look at the Labour Party policy, they'll say things like um, they will have uh, rail electrification, they're going to support high-speed rail, um, creating rail freight on the West Coast mainline, removing HGVs from the roads. Uh, they want to retrofit um, zero-carbon measures on social and council housing and public buildings. These are actually concrete policies that, that these are ways that are saying this is how we're going to reach this target which you haven't really been seeing from from the government they've said yes we're going to reach this target but have not actually then done anything to help you get you there and yet to be the uh, old grumpy one i mean does labor know if it can afford all this stuff i mean policy people i was speaking to at the conference, you know, where climate justice was definitely pulsating through all the discussions. We're saying, you know, the truth is that, like, it's going to be extremely tight. As Ed Miliband, of all people, was writing for us earlier in the summer to hit this 2050 because the Tories haven't explained how fast they can do it. It means getting all the petrol cars off the road and all that kind of thing. But saying you can do it that much quicker, I mean, do you believe them? Um. You know, I kind of do, yes, because I think it's um, it's tricky. But you, you talk about the cost of of doing it. There is also the cost of not doing it, which we've known about for a long time. You know, remember the mm. Nicholas Stern report from I think two thousand and six, commissioned by Gordon Brown, who said, uh, "Yes, uh, if we take action to do with climate change, there will be a knock to our GDP. But if we take no action to do with climate change, there'll be a far greater knock to our GDP." Um, so, even if from a purely economic terms, um, there is a huge cost to not doing anything. And I think that was one of the things that was interesting about this was that they were were saying, "Look, these are the things that we need to do now." It is not the, this is still the optimistic way of dealing with climate change. The, hey, look, uh, these are the great new opportunities we have. Let's back a Green New Deal, um, which, for example, Greta Thunberg would say, no, actually, you know, we need to be realistic. and We need regression, not progression. So it is still in, at the more optimistic end of things. Uh, but the fact that there are very real policies uh, that yes would cost money but would also create jobs is I think something to be applauded and, and, and actually then puts the ball back in the government's court to say look this is what the Labour Party is going to do what is it that you're actually going to do other than just mouth platitudes uh, last question then um, so that's on the Labour progressive side if you like of the um, political divide until now we've done much better certainly than the United States in avoiding um, a really kind of serious chunk of Westminster being in denial about um, climate change. But some people now say, Steve, that they can see the same um, uh, 
fault line opening up that's kind of coincident with the uh, divide on Brexit, with the older, the less educated, um, and frankly, the harder pressed parts of the country being fed up about it. Given the kind of general path that Boris Johnson and the Tories are on, regardless of what was said at conference, do you think they might go a bit climate sceptic? No, I don't think they will. Um, I think that's partly down to Boris Johnson himself, who, although in the past has made you know sceptical noises about climate change, uh, is now fully signed up to um, the view of pretty much every climate scientist in the world uh, that this is real and that, that uh, this needs to be dealt with. Uh, he made, during his leadership campaign, he made... Um, hitting net zero by 2050, one of his one of his pledges. Um, you know, so for a you know someone seen as a as a hard right pro Brexit uh, prime minister who makes that target on climate change one of his key pledges during the leadership elections, I think is thing interesting. Now, obviously, you go further right to the Brexit party, and they are very much um, either in or flirt with the climate denialists. Um, but I think within the upper echelons of the Conservative Party, that I think is one of the one of the few parts of Cameron modernisation that has stuck uh, within within the Tories. And I don't think we're going to see that sort of uh, culture war that we see in the US. Okay, Steve. So that sounds relatively encouraging. But obviously, the outlook for the planet as a whole, and indeed the politics of managing all of this transition at home, are going to depend very much on both people's perception and the reality of what other countries are doing as well because it's a global problem as we know and on all of that let's hear now from your conversation with david wallace wells i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use linkedin jobs linkedin has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. David Wallace-Wells, thank you very much for joining us. Great to be here. Um, Before we focus a bit on what's happening here in Britain, I want to ask you what's changed since you wrote the hardback version of this book and the paperback version coming out. What has 
happened that has made you more optimistic? What has happened that's made you more pessimistic? Well, on the big picture, nothing's changed. Emissions last year were higher than they've ever been before. A new peak, it was calculated in part that was because of new air conditioning to deal with the additional number of extremely hot days, which is a kind of a worrying trend going forward. Um, our share of, renew, you know, proportion of renewable to dirty energy has not changed at all. Um, still, no countries in the world are on track to meet their Paris commitments. Um, so on the emissions question, which is really the thing that matters, um, we're still in very much the same place, which is to say a catastrophic place, and only more so because time is running out to change that. Um, but the thing that's changed that's really remarkable and is, I think, a reason for genuine, not just hope, but exhilaration, is the political landscape around climate has changed in ways that I literally would not have felt were possible when I turned the book in. And I only turned the book in last September, September 2018. So at that point, the UN had not released its uh, 1.5 degree report, which happened in October. That report was um, much more alarmist in its tone and urgent in its tone than any equivalent report that had come before. And I think it spurred an absolutely incredible, dizzying year for climate mobilization. So at that point, we had never heard, we hadn't heard of Greta Thunberg. I, you know, she had started her climate strike, but she had not broken out, certainly internationally. Um, Extinction Rebellion had not um, emerged. Um, in the U.S., I had not heard of Sunrise. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez had not even been elected to Congress. Um, the Green New Deal had not been put forward. Um, you know, none of the developments we've seen in the U.S. around the presidential campaign had happened. So we didn't have Jay Inslee, who became a single-issue candidate on climate, coming forward. We didn't have Bernie Sanders actually doubling Inslee's plan in terms of its spending ambition. Um, these are all things I think were, for me anyway, they were unthinkable when I turned the book. And I had hope in some vague way for political progress, but I didn't think that there was much chance that we would see so much movement so quickly. Um, you know, that's really fantastic. On the other hand, as I said earlier, we've got so little time that we need a lot more than just millions of people marching in the street and politicians paying lip service to this as an issue. We need genuine, large-scale policy change. And I think the battles to make that happen are going to be as difficult as we thought they were a year ago, even if um, even if the sort of new language, new energy around um, climate has made it impossible for politicians to hide from this issue. We'll come back to that thing you mentioned about politicians and lip service in a moment. But I just want to pick up on something you said about the IPCC report in October. You said about how it was it was alarmist. It was more alarming than than any other. That was alarming. Your book is alarming. Uh, Extinction Rebellion is, you know, Th their premise is that we are going extinct. And Greta Thunberg's famous phrase is, you know, talking about uh, if your house is on fire, you should be alarmed. Do you think that that is one of the reasons why you're seeing greater mobilization now? Undeniably. And I think in a certain way, it retroactively indicts the way that the climate movement had talked about the issue for a decade or two before, because for a very long time, um, climate scientists, climate activists, um, were really reluctant to do anything but talk in hopeful ways about um, the climate science, even though they knew that science was terrifying. Um, and as a journalist, I looked at that story and felt they simply weren't being honest about what they were, what they knew. And um, as a result, the public was just not informed. I felt that that was patronizing to the public. And I also felt that it was um, unfortunate from an advocacy perspective because, you know, I speak as someone who myself 
was awakened out of what I would call climate complacency and mobilized into something like genuine climate engagement out of fear. And I looked at the history of environmental activism and I saw many other movements where the same tool, fear, had been used to great effect. You know, Rachel Carson in her Silent Spring was called Hyperbolic and Alarmist when it was published in the U.S. It led to the ban on DDT, the pesticide DDT, and to the creation of the EPA. Movements against nuclear proliferation and drunk driving and cigarette smoking, these are all movements that we've used the rhetoric of fear at least as part of the rhetorical toolkit. And climate hadn't. Um, when the UN says, as they did in that in that um, report from last October, that in order to avoid catastrophic warming requires us to have our emissions by 2030, and that doing that requires a World War II scale mobilization against climate globally starting this year, 2019, you know, World War II was not a war that was fought out of hope and optimism. Um, there was plenty of fear and alarm going on among the allied powers in, in pushing back the Axis threat. If we take that analogy seriously, I think we have to um, at least understand that fear is useful as one of many tools in motivating the public. On top of that, it happens just to be an honest expression of our best understanding of the science. You know, I often am called a climate alarmist. I don't think it's entirely inaccurate, but I also think that if the, if, if the science as we know it is alarming, the role of truth tellers is to alarm people. And ultimately, you know, I don't want to say that my book is simply a list of scientific facts. Um, there is writing and there's some thinking in it. But on some level, um, that is what it is. It is a digest of what we know. And people find it eye-opening in part because they were um, that information was, frankly, kind of withheld from them for, for quite a long time. And I think it's really held back the climate movement. Now, I don't know if scientists and activists had been as forthright as they're being now 10 years ago or 15 years ago, whether that meant would have meant that we met a Greta Thunberg in 2004 or, you know, saw an extinction rebellion in 2004. It's possible other political conditions, including the financial crash, have made our, you know, distrust of elites in particular, um, made us more receptive to really dramatic movements like these. Um, but I also think when you look at the last year and see how much has changed, it's impossible not to have at least some regret that these rhetorical tools and this rhetorical approach wasn't um, deployed a little bit more aggressively over the past decades when honestly we had a lot more time um, and would have been to, to deal with the problem, which means that taking action would have been frankly a lot easier than it is today. You mentioned before about you know politicians getting on board, and uh, in the U.S. you have Democratic candidates for president that are, you know, essentially if they're not behind the Green New Deal, they're not going to get anywhere. They each have their own version of you know a, a climate change policy that is that's far more dramatic than than any candidate for president on either side has been. In, oh, by in, categories, in, yeah, in, yeah. in history. Um, you know, in Canada, you've had Justin Trudeau, who's claimed to make climate change part of his uh, key part of his um, of his political ideology. Uh, in Germany, you've had Angela Merkel uh, talking about uh, green energy and pushing through a lot of green energy. Uh, and here in the UK, you've had um, both sides now the the political landscape is one of the few things I can actually agree on is that um, we can't go on as we are, we are. There's been this commitment that we're in a climate emergency that was passed in the House of Commons with no opposition at all. The government has said we should have carbon net zero by 2050. And yet, in reality, are these politicians actually living up to these words? Well, I think you have to judge them one by one. Um, in general, 
I think it's important to keep in mind, no pledge ever made by any country in the history of the climate change story has ever been honored by that country. So on some level, these are these could well turn out to be empty promises. On the other hand, the fact that they're being made is itself a sign of something and that they're being made much more ambitiously than any pledges that were made before. Um, and I think it's really important to keep in mind in this context, you know, every aspect about climate change it's not a binary problem. It's not a matter of whether we preserve the climate perfectly as it is today and avoid almost all climate suffering or whether we end up in an apocalypse scenario. Every tick upward, every tiny tenth of a degree, even less than that, um, of difference we can make will make a huge difference in the world. And so um, on some level, I think it's useful, even if these pledges go unfulfilled, that we're establishing them as benchmarks against which we should judge ourselves. Um, and for that reason, you know, I would like to see Britain make a more ambitious commitment than 2050. I would like to see them, I mean, Extinction Rebellion talks about zero carbon by 2025. I literally don't think that's possible. But um, I would like to see a kind of a, a goal of may maybe 2035 for zero carbon for the UK. Or maybe even which, just some policies that get you towards 2050, absolutely. which at the well, moment we, seem we to none. be absent. Yeah. Um, and I think that will... I mean, those per, those details will will come. Probably they will be judged insufficient by certain people on on the climate left, and probably they'll be much more ambitious than anything that's ever come before. Um, but I also think that there is a real risk of um, climate hypocrisy um, by our leaders. You know, you mentioned Justin Trudeau. The day after Canada declared a climate emergency, they also approved a new oil pipeline. Um, that kind of behavior, I think, is likely to become actually much more common in the years ahead when the leaders of the world um, come to understand that climate is one of these, quote unquote, universal values, which they have to signal um, concern for and commitment to. And yet, in their particular um, behavior in their particular, the policies that they're managing of their particular nations, um, they face a very different set of incentives that push them in other directions. So when I think about, you know, the, say, confrontation that recently happened between um, the French President Emmanuel Macron and the Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro over the fires in the Amazon, you know, Macron tried and failed to pass a carbon tax last year. Um, these fires burning in the Amazon were... Um, actually not all that concerning. Um, they were land that had already been deforested. It would be better if they, it hadn't been deforested, but it was not wildfire. It was fire being set by farmers burning their land as part of their annual farming cycle. Um, the health of the Amazon is of international concern, absolutely, and Jair Bolsonaro's policy for that region is terrifying. Brazilian scientists have estimated that his deforestation plans would be the equivalent of adding a second China and a second U.S. to the world's carbon emissions problem, which would be terrible. Um, and yet we had this kind of strange political theater going on where a, a global leader who had failed to make a, uh, a change to his own country's policies was grandstanding and attacking another world leader um, for something that didn't ultimately make all that much difference, these particular fires, and then offered a Ins a genuinely insulting uh, um, amount of money to help him fight those fires, $20 million, which, just to put it in context, less than 1% of the California state fire budget. California Fire Agency has an annual budget of $3.4 billion, and Macron was offering $20 million to Brazil, which is a country that has a long history of seeing environmentalism of any kind as a kind of stalking horse for colonial concerns. And if Macron had been sensitive to the domestic politics that B Bolsonaro faced, he probably would have been a lot more thoughtful about how he approached that. 
it was a kind of a, a strange um, portent, I think, of one near-term future for our climate geopolitics, which is a bit of showmanship around the issue of climate change in much the same way that we've seen over previous decades, some great power showmanship over, say, human rights or free markets or um, where, you know, nations are going about conducting their rivalries, um, not out of genuine conviction to these principles, but because um, they understand that they are the sort of stated common values of the international order and that they can bully their enemies um, using those, those tools. But there are some other possibilities more productive possibilities imaginable as well. Um, you know, Macron threatened to um, threatened to you know spike this Mercosur um, trade deal um, over the over the um, deforestation plan. That's really for the first time I think um, a a threat of an international leader um, basically you know threatening um, sanctions for bad behavior on climate. I think personally, looking forward. If I imagine a decade, two decades, three decades from now, it's almost impossible to imagine a world order in which that kind of thing isn't happening actually quite a lot. Um, because I think it's inevitable that climate change will become, will will come to be the very center of the way that we think about the balance of power in the world. Um, literally, we'll see some nation's borders redrawn by climate change. But in a more metaphorical way, the sort of power dynamics of the world will be transformed by these forces as well. And I think we'll we'll start to see, you know, Arguments between um, the U.S. and China over climate behavior. Um, certainly, um, the attitude of the West towards Saudi Arabia is likely to change over um, the meaning and value and future of, of those oil reserves. Um, and I think we're likely to see a, a whole new order emer you know, emerge over the next few decades where um, no matter what kind of conversation is being had between nations or at the U.N. or through any um, multilateral group, that climate change will be at the very center of those conversations. Um, but exactly what path that takes, I don't yet know. I don't think any of us really know because it's still so early and we're still at the sort of nakedly rhetorical uh, stage of, um, and, and at, at that level too, we haven't yet started sort of putting real policy meat on the rhetorical bones about climate change. The other way that climate change is affecting politics is at the darker end. You've seen um, the shooter in Christchurch and then some of the other... Um, uh, killers in the U.S. in in the recent shootings um, have talked about um, have talked about climate change and uh, the fear of overpopulation uh, and fights over resources that's infected their I don't want to call them manifestos but their their screeds that they've that mm -hmm. they've published. Um, what do you make of those and and what do you think are the ways of dealing with those issues? Well, in general, I would I would say. In a different context, what I said a few minutes ago, which is that you know nothing is nothing is binary in this, so it's not as though um, we're we're likely to only see one particular political response to climate change. Um, it's too big a story; it's too complicated, affecting too many people, and changing um, so much of the way that we all fundamentally regard our place in the world and um, the future of the planet and our countries. That invariably, people are going to take many, many different kinds of lessons and and take, you know develop very different kinds of politics and response. Um, I think on some level, it's inevitable. I mean, I wrote about this a little bit in my book, um, that there will be some degree of um, right-wing um, agitation around climate. I think that if you were to imagine what a, pol a politics emerging out of dramatic climate change might be, you could predict, say, you know, growing intuitions about resource scarcity, um, increasing 
um, increasing adoption of zero-sum view of international competition rather than the positive-sum approach that at least Western nations have had over the last few decades. Um, you'd see, as a result, probably some increased retreat from international cooperation into more nativism and xenophobia and sort of more narrowly defined sense of national self-interest. And, you know, it's, I say all that to say, obviously, in a lot of the world, we're already there. Um, that's part of what explains Brexit, which was in part prompted by um, nativistic response to the Syrian refugee crisis. Um, climate refugees, the UN says, are likely to be, you know, the climate refugee crisis is likely to be a couple hundred times bigger than the Syrian refugee crisis. Um, in the U.S., same. Um, and, you know, all around the world, we're seeing sort of populist movements that track almost exactly with what we would expect a right wing response to um, global climate change to look like. Now, that's not to say I think that, you know, Jared Bolsonaro is a climate president or Donald Trump is a climate president. Um, but I think it's inevitable that or maybe not inevitable, that it's quite likely that if things continue to get worse, we'll see more figures like that. And we'll also see on the further fringes, probably more figures like um, those that we saw in Christchurch and El Paso, who um, animated by a lot of these same concerns, feeling like the world can't possibly support that many people. And therefore, in a sort of selfish way, they want to um, secure some advantage for themselves and those like them. I think that's likely to be um, a, you know, a response um, we see more and more of. And in the um, in the lead up to the European elections last spring, we saw one of Marine Le Pen advisors talking about borders being the best defense against climate change. Um, so that's all happening on the on the right wing side. Um, there's just as sort of dynamic and f um, fluid a set of impulses emerging on the left. Um, you know, you have still some technocratic green growth liberalism, which wants to solve this with a, a carbon tax and techno technological innovation, which I applaud. I happen to think those things will be insufficient, but I think that they're probably a valuable part of the solution. You have something like um, the Green New Deal in the U.S., which is um, really a proposition that we try Keynesian stimulus spending at a scale that no nation in the world has tried in many decades um, and couple it to climate action. I think there's real rhetorical wisdom in that because actually the American public does want a jobs guarantee and they do want Medicare for all and that kind of thing. Um, and then there's um, there's some, you know, further to the left than that, there's a kind of um, a growing consensus in certain quarters that um, we can't possibly address the climate crisis without a genuine revolution that overturns the capitalistic order. And maybe even beyond that, um, a sense that addressing the scale at the crisis that it demands um, may require us to abandon all hope of economic growth at all and embrace a what's called a steady state economy where things just stay the same. And I know enough about that um, research and that thinking to think it's not ridiculous to say. I'm personally not ready to go there yet, and I also would really worry about what abandoning hope of future economic growth would mean to our politics because so much of the way that people like you and I relate to the future and to the political order in which we live is premised on some sense that the future could be more prosperous and more um, just than the, than the present and certainly in the past. Um, but you see this whole spectrum um, of sort of political responses ranging from the truly nihilistic eco-fascist all the way to the truly sort of utopian um, eco-socialist and everywhere in between. And I think most people probably feel, you know, some mix of some of those things at different times on different days. Um, and we shouldn't be surprised if our politics generally 
are really thrown into flux um, by some of these forces in in the same way because you know um, at different moments different factions are going to feel empowered and different factions are going to feel disempowered and um, I think likelier than collectively certainly at the global level um, our taking a kind of single path forward the much likelier outcome is that we really muddle ahead with a variety of different and even contradictory approaches where in some in some countries where continuing to subsidize fossil fuels and in others we're making massive investments in R&D in some countries we're talking about putting up borders in other countries we're making a show of welcoming climate refugees in a dramatic way um, I think we're likely heading for a quite messy politics of climate and um, at a kind of sociological level that's that's really interesting I think we haven't yet developed um, really a political theory of what this would mean and how it would play out and on some level um, it'll be fascinating to watch, but it's also quite scary because, um, you know, the hope of an adequate response to this crisis almost requires concerted, coordinated global action. Well, that's why I wanted to come on to ask you about, because all of this is happening at a time where, um, you know, we're talking more about borders. We have uh, more nationalistic presidents and prime ministers, the idea of putting a country first um is you know is popular in in, in many of the, the 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 most powerful countries across the world and even the countries we thought of as the leading liberal countries of the world yes yeah 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 yeah, yeah. we can talk about america as well yeah um so what and, and and yet you know as you say you know climate change is one of those things which has to be dealt with really at an international level it doesn't you know climate change doesn't stop at your border whatever you know an ally of marine le pen might say um how do we ensure that we deal with climate change in an international and democratic manner? I don't think we can ensure it. Um, and it really scares me. It actually scares me a lot more than the challenge of coordinating action within nations, which I think there are challenges there and nobody's doing sufficient work. But I, I see the paths forward. The biggest problem to me is that this is a you know what economists call a collective action problem. Um, we have, you know, emissions are produced by nations, and the impacts are distributed to other nations. Um, that means that any individual nation cannot really control its own climate. Even a country like China, which is the big, world's biggest emitter, about thirty percent, twenty nine percent of global emissions. It's about twice as big as the second biggest, which is the United States. Even China. It's only responsible for 29% of global emissions. So if they cut their emissions in half, that'll have an impact. But it's not going to alone radically transform the climate future of the planet. Um, and when you go down the list, you know, after the U.S., the third nation is India with 7%. And after that, basically no nation has, is responsible for more than 1% or 2% of all global emissions. So you look at a country like Australia which recently went through what was called a kind of climate election. It was called that in anticipation because the media really felt that the liberal um, prime ministerial candidate was going to win running on a climate action program. And Australia is in a kind of interest. It's an interesting case study in the sense that, um, you know, mostly the countries of the world who are going to be hit hardest by climate change are the world's poorest. Um, Australia is kind of the one exception. It's a, it's a wealthy country that is nevertheless because of its ge geography already really suffering and will suffer more. Um, and the, his opponent, the conservative, ran against climate action explicitly. I mean, this was very much on the ballot. And up until the last day, the liberal candidate was really expected to win, and he lost. Um, but on some level, this judgment makes sense to me. Um, 
I hate to say it, but you know, Australia is responsible for 1% of global climate emissions. So if, they're, if they could completely zero out what they're doing, not produce one single additional molecule of carbon, unless the rest of the world follows suit, they're going to be living through the same miserable climate as they would otherwise. It just doesn't make that much of a difference. Um, and that's a basic inherent problem. It's an inherent challenge here. Um, it happens that China is responsible for 29% of um, global climate emissions. The, their percentage of climate impacts that's been calculated is one quarter the size of their emissions. So they have this incredibly perverse incentive structure where they can, you know, they're, they can burn a lot more fossil fuel and they basically won't be all that affected even if the rest of the world is really suffering. And that means to me, at least in theory, we really want to coordinate global action in some kind of international framework that really um, enforces commitments. And yet, we tried that with the Paris Accords. In 20, we, Paris Accords were negotiated in 2015, signed in 2016. No major industrial nation in the world is on track to meet those commitments. The only two countries in the world that are even, quote, compatible with Paris are Morocco and Gambia. And this is just three years in. Um, it's been... I, to this point, a disastrous failure. Now we're about to enter into a new negotiating cycle with the new COP25 in Chile. Well, it's expected that we're going to countries are going to be making even more ambitious targets, but whether or not they'll be able to fulfill them is very much an open question. And whether this whole framework of international cooperation can work and organize action, I think, is also an open question. I'm not sure what succeeds it. I think it's conceivable to imagine a kind of two country led alliance if the us and china really did take a very aggressive role um in the next few years um you know those countries are which almost looked like it was going to happen a few years ago when you had you know obama you know going to china there was a, a china us deal yeah. on yeah. on emissions yeah i mean i think we need a much stricter deal than sure, that sure but been. it was it was at least yeah. something that, that yeah. made people think okay there is there is some progress here yeah i th i you know and we'll see what hopefully that a new American president in short order who can help make that happen. On the other hand, Xi Jinping is a, is a really complicated figure in this story because, um, you know, China's making massive investments in renewable energy. They, they actually, they dwarf, they shame the rest of the world, but they're also still opening coal plants um, and their emissions are still growing. And, you know, there's been some estimate that their emissions may peak uh, as soon as 2021, which is almost a full decade before it w they were expected to peak, that's progress. But, um, you know, it's not as much progress as um, moving <laughs> moving down already. And, you know, again, I don't want to I don't want um, to offer any false comfort or false confidence. I think this is really a really messed up system that we have um, where there's very little um, structural incentive at the moment for any nation in the world to behave well on climate and very little at the moment for us to use to punish bad actors on climate. Although, as we were talking about earlier, we're starting to see some of that with this um, rhetoric around Bolsonaro that we could, um, and we'll see where it develops. You mentioned there's no structural incentive on any nation to change their behavior. Um, there's also, and in fact, in more so, no structural incentive for any individual to really Absolutely. change their behavior yeah. and a large part of how we've talked about climate change in you know as long as you know I've, I've been aware of it you know for the last 20 25 years has been about what the individual can do 
you know, whether it's do you recycle, do you know, what's your, what's your carbon footprint? Um, and often, you know, I'm sure you've been asked on, on this trip here, you know, well, you know, what do you do? And, you know, did you fly here? Why didn't you take a boat? Why didn't you do this? And a lot of it is put on the individual rather than on the system. And then people end up despairing because it's like, well, what's the point of me recycling when yeah. I don't even know whether stuff's actually going to be recycled? Yeah, it's, um, it's another sort of paralyzing dynamic. Um, yeah, I don't really have a question. <laughs> well, you know, I, I do think it's, you know, it's funny. I, I think of myself um, at my emotional core as being still a neoliberal with some technocratic impulses. You know, I came of age in the U.S. in the 1990s in New York City. Um, and even though I know that a lot of the shibboleths that came with that moment are misleading at, at best. Um, they still re- they remain my reflexes, my political reflexes towards the world. And yet I, st- I look at this problem and I think it is a sin of neoliberalism, a crime that we were taught for so long that we made our mark on the world through what we consumed and what we bought and not through politics because we were basically being redirected away from politics towards the market because that served both, that served you know the powers that be, both in the political realm and in the commercial realm, and it's just simply not the case that one one's choices there make much of a difference. Now, I don't want to tell people who feel compelled to alter their own lives out of concern for the climate not to do that. I think people should do what they can to live within their values on this, as with everything else. I think it's important to. And helpful in the sense of signaling to people around you that you care about this issue. And I think that's really important because the polling shows that many more people sort of nurse private anxieties about climate change than ever talk about them, even with the ones they love. And that means that we've, we're sort of behind in cultivating a public discourse about how panicked everybody is. Um, and I think it helps signal to politicians that we're willing to make changes and maybe bring about some more dramatic policy changes. But if you take the problem at the scale that it presents itself at, there is simply no hope of addressing it adequately at all through individual action, even masked individual action. Um, the problem is just way too big and way too thorny than that. You know, like I can't bring about a new electrical grid in the U.S. based on what how I consume my electricity. The government has to build that grid. And it's a grid today, the grid in the U.S., 65% of the power generated in the United States is lost on the grid as waste heat. Now, people who know that stuff well tell you some of that is inevitable, but it certainly doesn't have to be two-thirds is lost. Similarly, we throw out as much as you know, 50% or 60% of the food we eat. Um, now, if I, ate, if I threw out less food than, than I eat, than I do, um, it would make some minor difference. But if we had some collective policy that you know, either managed the way that um, food was distributed or um, sold, or, you know, who knows exactly what it would be, um, that would be a much more effective... Um, method of dealing with that problem. And I think that's especially acute when you think about something like air travel. You know, we hear a lot about air travel now and it's grotesque how much um, how much problems it causes for, for the planet. You know, I, I flew here, I did fly here from New York. My seat melted three square meters of Arctic ice, my one seat on that one plane. Um, but I don't think it's plausible to imagine in the relatively short order a global, um, you know, uh, boycott of air travel. And I think as a result, what that means is that we need to develop a new kind of airplane 
that can fly without imposing that kind of carbon um, footprint on the future. And we have some technology that will that allows us to fly planes that way now, but they're small planes. They're certainly not major passenger jets that could fly across oceans. In order to develop those further, we really need to have some significant public investment and public regulation um, to bring you know to bring about those technological changes. And I, I think that's why, for me at least, it's by far the most important thing any individual can do is to push for you know new politics which will prioritize action, genuine policy to address these questions. We'll leave it there. David Wallace-Wells, thank you very much. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thank you. And that's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. David Wallace-Wells' The Uninhabitable Earth is now out in bookstores. Rebecca Liu is our producer. And if you enjoyed the Prospect podcast, please do leave us a rating and review, which really does help. See you again next week. Thanks very much and goodbye. Thank you.